Good morning, everyone. So our passage this morning is from Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. Good morning. Welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Brooks. I'll be bringing you the word this morning as we're continuing through this series entitled Living Stones. And it's it's based off of a series we were in before, which is 1 Peter. And one of the things that, uh, oh boy. Dang it, that's not the right one, but we'll work with it. So I'm just going to turn to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll fix it for the second service. How about that? 1 Peter chapter 2. Bear with me here. There we go. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What Peter is doing there is he's telling us, He's telling the, the, the church that he's writing to, the churches that he's writing to, this is who you are now. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. And get this. Are you ready for this? And you are a holy nation. Now, how many of you feel particularly holy this morning? Now, it doesn't seem humble to say, I am holy. That's what God declares us to be. Now, in practice, we'd sin and we fall short. Yes, we know this, right? But... What we're going to look at this morning, what we're going to look at this morning is the process by which God makes those whom he declares to be holy practically and actually holy. So we're declared holy, but in practice we fall short. Yes. What we're going to look at this morning as we look to numbers and we look at Moses example here, we're going to see how God took Moses, how God took Moses and transformed him to the place 
where he's actually declared to be the meekest man alive. That's what we're going to take a look at. So turn in uh, your Bibles to, to Numbers chapter 12. How to grow in humility, the context, we're going to look at three things. Complaints and critics, we're going to see the journey by which Moses got to Numbers 12 and all that he went, not all that he went through, there's quite a bit, that would take a lot longer than the time we have. Then we're going to take a look at humility, what it looks like, humility, what it looks like, and then we're going to take it, take a look at humility, where it comes from. God declares, or Moses actually declares himself to be the meekest man alive, which technically when you call yourself the most humble person on the planet, doesn't that disqualify you from being the most humble person on the planet generally? What do you think? Unless it's true. If it's not true, then that disqualifies you. But if it is true, declaring something about yourself which is true, is, is, that's, not, that's not proud. That's just being truthful. It's not boasting. It's just making a true statement. So we're going to take a look at the context, humility, what it looks like. In this case, what it looks like for Moses and then humility, where it comes from. Humility is an aspect of holiness. It's what a, a ho- someone who is holy is humble. And, and we're going to take a look at how this process works. So turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 12 and we will pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for Jesus who is humble and became a servant became obedient even unto death. And Lord, this is certainly uh, described here in, in the life of Moses and help us to understand how you made him to be the, the humble person that he was. Lord, we desire to be made more like you. We pray that you would make yourself, make yourself known to us this morning through the preaching of your word. Speak to our hearts and may Christ be exalted. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, first of all, the context. The context here in, in, uh, in Numbers 12 is the perils of leadership. Okay, when, when you're a leader of anything, moms and dads, you're the leaders of your home, and your little children will be your critics, especially when they become teenagers. But if, you're, if, if you own a business, those who are underneath you will be your critics. Uh, if you're in customer service, you're going to deal with critics. If you're a pastor, you're going to deal with critics. Everything that I say this morning, everything I say this morning, you will judge. All of you will judge it. You will either think, wow, that was really good and edifying, or you will think that was awful, or you'll think nothing because you don't care and you just dismissed it. But either way, everything that I say is on, is up for evaluation, and that's what happens when you're a leader. Everyone is constantly evaluating your performance. True statement? Uh, how many times you got on Facebook to see how many times Ferris should be fired? Anybody? That's what the perils of leadership is all about. And Moses understands this. Moses understands this. So let's take a look. Two years of constant complaints. If you look back at, uh, here we have in chapter 11... Verse four, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving and the people of Israel also wept and get, oh, that we had meat to eat. Oh, that they're sick of manna. It's been two years, two years since they've left Egypt. They've been provided for water. They've been provided for from manna from heaven. And now they are sick of that. And they're, they're, they're grousing and complaining and they are just constantly at Moses, constantly at Moses. So God appoints helpers. Moses goes to God and he complains to God. And he says, why don't you just, just please just take my life. 
Why have you given me these people to be my burden? Take my life. And so instead of taking his life, God gives him appointed elders, 70 appointed elders to help, to help. And he pours out his spirit on these 70 appointed elders and they prophesy. So they're going to take some of the load of leadership off of Moses' shoulders. So that's good. But then afterwards, there's these two individuals, and these two individuals, they're not part of the 70, but they too begin to prophesy. And, and Joshua is concerned, he's concerned, and he, he comes to, to Moses and essentially tattles. He says, Moses, Moses, these two guys, they're not part of the 70, and, and now they're prophesying too. Because he was jealous for Moses. He wanted Moses to be the one that spoke for God. He didn't want these other people to speak for God. And so he was jealous for Moses. And Moses was like, Joshua, I, I, wish, I wish that everybody, that God would pour out his spirit on everybody, that everyone would prophesy. Relax. It's okay. You don't have to protect my honor as the leader. So, and then, and then Moses, and now it brings us up to chapter 12. And then finally, Moses' own siblings turn on him. Moses' own siblings turn on him. So we've had two years of Moses leading God's people where they are constantly criticizing him, constantly complaining, and now it's his own family. Now it's his own family. So that brings us up to speed. So chapter 12, verse 1, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. Now, we're not exactly sure what is going on here. We just know that you know, Zipporah was not a Cushite. She was a Midianite. That's, that's the mother of Moses' children. Now, remember, Moses is at least 82 years old. It is quite safe to assume that Zipporah has passed on, and there's no record of this in Scripture, but evidently he's married a Cushite woman. There, his, his brother and sister, Miriam and Arian, are using this as an excuse. It's not an issue, but they're making it an issue by which they can confront him because they want a share in the leadership too. And so here's what they say. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? You get the gist here. This is what happens in, in leadership. When, when, people become, uh, when people become displeased or they judge the leader to be incompetent, they start looking around and say, I can do this just as well as they can. And then they start to make that known. Absalom did the same thing with his father, David. And, and you see this throughout history. You see it in the business world. You see it in the church. This is what happens when churches split. There's a lot of reasons for, for discord, but, but this is one of the things that contributes to that. And so we're about ready to, there's, we're getting close here to a split. Miriam and Aaron are vying for leadership. They're challenging Moses' God-given authority. Does not God also speak to through us? And then the last three, uh, or the last phrase there in verse two, and the Lord heard it. And the Lord heard it. So how does God respond? Let's take a look. Well, before we get to how God responds, let's take a look at how Moses responds. Verse three. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Who's writing numbers? Okay. Tradition believes and, and communicates that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law. 
He put them all together, Genesis uh, through Numbers here. So he put, or Deuteronomy. So he put them all together. So if Moses indeed is pinning this, this is a self-proclaimed title. Hi, I'm Moses. I happen to be the most meekest man alive. Now the word meek here, the word meek means lowly. It's a synonym for humble. It means to be of no account. Moses believes himself to be the most humble human being on the planet. Now, at face value, when someone dubs themselves the most humble man alive, we typically hear that and we immediately write them off as the least humble man alive. But what if it's true? What if it's true? If someone says, I have a million dollars and they actually have a million dollars, is is that a... It could be a boast or it could just be a true statement. If, if, some, if Moses says, I'm the meekest man alive, and he is the meekest man alive, that's not a proud statement. It's just, a, it's just something that's true about him that he is stating. So if it's not true, well, then it's, a, it's an arrogant boast, which would demonstrate that he's not the meekest man alive. But if it is true, what's the evidence that demonstrates that he actually is as meek as he seems to think that he is. What's the evidence? Let's take a look at the evidence. So the evidence here, Moses and his criticism. One of the greatest ways that you can determine if a person has humility is how they respond to their critics. And we have lots and lots and lots of examples of how Moses responded to his critics. We can see in Exodus chapter 14, Verses 11 and 12, this is just after the Passover. Moses leads them out into the wilderness and they find themselves on the banks of the Red Sea. And now they can see Pharaoh and his army fast approaching and they complain. They complain, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you should lead us out here to die at the hand of Pharaoh? What kind of leader would bring us to this place? And how does Moses respond? Moses responds by saying, Behold, stand firm, fear not, and watch the power of the Lord. And then the Red Sea opens, and they go through, and then Egypt follows, and they perish. Then we have later, on the other side of the Red Sea, as soon as they get thirsty, Did you lead us out into the wilderness to die of thirst? Were there no graves in Egypt that you should bring us here into the wilderness? So they're complaining again. Moses, what an idiot. How could you possibly be so dumb as to bring us out here where there's no water? And what does Moses do? He goes to the Lord and God provides water. Shortly thereafter, Another round of complaining, another round of questioning his sanity, his, his competency as a leader. There's no food here. What are you thinking? Did you lead us out here? And in each one of those, in each one of those, the people, not only do they criticize Moses, but they also say that they should go back to Egypt. They should go back to Egypt where there were, where there was onions and leeks and watermelons and, and uh, at least there we were well fed. And so what does Moses do? He goes to the Lord. He presents his case. He intercedes for the people and God provides manna. 
And then in Numbers, two years later, so this has been two years of wandering in the wilderness, two years later, they have plenty of food, they have plenty of water, but they're sick of the food. And, and they want meat. And they long for, back in the days, at least in Egypt, we had meat that we could eat. And they long to go back to Egypt. And so then God provides quail. Provides so much that he says, it's going to be coming out of your nostrils. You're going to have so much quail. And then chapter 12, his siblings reveal, rebel. So here's what we have. In every single one of those cases, and I mean every single case, three things are consistently true. Number one, Moses never defends himself. Never. Let's just pause right there. How many of you, spouses, in the last month, your spouse has pointed out something that you did wrong or are doing wrong? How many? Just, just, how many of you defended yourself? Just one. Okay. Oh, there's three. So we got three. This is a humble group. I am so impressed. There's no need for even go on because we've already arrived. Now we're, I'm laughing and you're laughing because you know, that's not true. My natural tendency, if you criticize me is I want to justify myself and I want to prove to you that the reason that I made whatever decision I made was the right decision. I almost always at least want to defend myself. It's natural. Moses never defends himself. Never, not once, to the people that he's leading. Secondly, he always allows God to vindicate himself. He always allows God to vindicate himself. He never defends himself, but he always allows God to vindicate him. This, this is Moses' tendency. This is Moses' trait. He always allows God to vindicate him. It reminds me of a, a story that I read about Jonathan Edwards one of the greatest uh, preachers and theologians on this continent, uh, preached during the first great awakening in North America. He's the, the founder of Princeton Seminary. He is just, he's just a giant, an intellect. And someone in his congregation, one of his elders, began to say things which were untrue about him. And eventually he was ran out on a rail. His people rose up and they basically ran him out of his own church. This is the guy who preached sinners in the hands of an angry God and, and God used to spark the first great awakening, right? So this is not just some guy who was incompetent. He, God really used this man. And one of his friends says, Jonathan, you've got to defend yourself. You've got to do your friend to self. And, and what Jonathan Edwards said was, it is the Lord's job to vindicate me. I will not vindicate myself. And so he was ran out of his church. And it was 12 years later that the individual who ran him out finally was convicted of his sin and repented and asked for his forgiveness. But he'd already been run out. His name had already been slandered. Jonathan Edwards refused to vindicate himself. Moses never vindicated himself. He allowed God to vindicate him. And lastly, and this is probably the most amazing thing, he always interceded for the very people who were criticizing him. He was always going before the Lord. In fact, and we looked at this last week at the, at the incident of the golden calf. He said, Lord, spare them. If not, blot my name out of the book of life. Out of, blot my name out of the book. He said, 
Take me and, and spare them. These are the people that are criticizing him. These are the people that think he's incompetent. These are the people that are posting on Facebook that he, his job, he shouldn't have it. I don't think they had Facebook back then. But if they did, they would have posted that, right? That's how Moses handled criticism. That's what humility looks like. So that's what it looks like, or at least a portion of it. I mean, we could go on and on about the characteristics of humility, but this is how you see it evidenced in Moses' life. And that's why the title, The Meekest Man on the Face of the Planet, is not a boast, it's a fact. It's false humility not to claim something that's true about yourself, if it's true. If somebody says to you, they come up to you, you know, you did a great job, whatever it is you're doing. You say, oh, no, no, it was, it was, it was nothing. That's, does that sound humble to you? That's false humility. If you did a good job, just say, thank you. I worked hard. That would be true. That would be humble. Oh, no, 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 no. It was nothing. Well, that's a lie because it was something because you worked really hard to do it. Do you, do you see how that works? We've convoluted what humility looks like. Now, I'm not saying, yeah, it was pretty awesome because I'm awesome. I mean, you can, <laughs> that's not true either. That's not true either. But Moses is not saying he's awesome. He's just stating a fact. Now, the question is, how do you get to that place where that statement can actually become true? How do you become someone who is truly meek, truly humble? I used to think, I used to think that the answer to that was in his, in what he'd gone through. You know, Moses used to be the prince of Egypt and then he, and, and then he thought he was someone and he sees that Egyptian and he killed him and he was hoping that everybody would follow him because, well, you know, he's the prince of Egypt. He's awesome. But he's identifying with Hebrews now, right? Well, that didn't happen. Then he became a fugitive and then he tended cheap for 40 years. And I thought, oh, you see, that's how God makes a person humble is that he humbles them by, by giving them circumstances where you know, they, they have time to think and you just hang around sheep. And so now, now Moses thinks, oh, well, I'm, I'm not much anymore. And so we looked at that a couple weeks ago. You remember Exodus chapter 3 when Moses encounters God at the burning bush? And what does he say? God says, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to set my people free. And God says to, or Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Does that sound humble to you? It sounds humble. Who am I that I should go to, to Pharaoh? It's never humble to speak to God and tell him you can't do something that he asked you to do because you can't do it. Because what you're doing is saying to God, I know more about you do about me, so therefore I can't. That is the proudest statement a person can make, to say to God, I can't because I don't have what it takes. Well, God says, uh, you do, and I'm telling you to go, but I can't speak. I'll give you Aaron, but I can't go. You see, there's no humility there. That's false humility. That's wallowing in your circumstances. Oh, poor me. It's not a correct view of self. It's not humble at all. 
So how did he get to this place where he actually is humble? How did he get there? Let's take a look at the text. So we're back in numbers here. And God heard it. That is, he heard Aaron and Miriam's uh, statement. God heard it. And suddenly, and suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. They've all been called to the principal's office, essentially. Moses, Aaron, and Miriam stand before the Lord. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron. By the way, I'm just curious. If you're Aaron and Miriam, how do you feel right now? What's going on in your, in your gut? You've just criticized Moses. Doesn't God speak to us? And God heard it. And now you've been called to the principal's office and a pillar of cloud descends. If, I, if I'm Aaron, I'm sweating. I'm nervous. And they both came forward and he said, hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision and I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all of my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, face to face. Clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. And he departed. Okay. Let's, let's take a look at this. Let's take a look at this. Why? Why? Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. He beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak to my servant Moses? Okay. How did he get to the place where he actually can say with integrity, I'm the meekest man on the planet? It's because he spoke with the Lord as a man speaks to a man. A person becomes humble by encountering a holy God. Period. That's how you become humble. To the degree that you and I draw near to God, to the degree that you and I experience the presence, the person, and the power of Jesus Christ, you become consciously aware of who God is in his majesty, in his holiness, in his justice, in his love, in his mercy, and you begin to understand who God is. You begin to think God's thoughts after God. The same way, you know how married couples after a while, after a long while, they begin to, you can finish one another's sentences, right? Right? You know them so well. Why do you know them so well? How do you know them so well? Because you've been with them for such a long time. Now, I know early on in marriage, it's kind of like prophecy. Your wife speaks to you in dreams and riddles, and you can't figure out what she's really saying, (laughs) right? Or vice versa. And it's frustrating. You're trying to interpret. But after a while, you just know each other. This is Moses with his God. He knows God. He knows God's holiness. He knows God's mercy. He knows God's justice. He knows God's love. He knows God's compassion. 
He knows him. He's not having dreams like Joseph had. He's talking to him. He's hearing from him. He's intimate with him. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. This is right after, immediately after the, the text we looked at, I think last week, with the golden calf. And so Moses intercedes for them. They're grumbling. They're complaining. They, they, where's this Moses character who let us out? He's gone. We don't even know where he's at. He's probably dead. Make us, make us idols that will go before us. And so Aaron does. Aaron does. And we covered that last week. Moses intercedes. Verse 12, chapter 33. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and, and, and also you have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I've found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. I'm going to read that again. I want you to listen carefully. If I've found favor in your sight, please, please show me your ways. Please show me your ways that I may know you in order that he might find favor in your sight. What is Moses' number one chief desire? What does he want more than anything else right now? I'll tell you what he doesn't want. He doesn't want the people's recognition and praise. He's not concerned about their recognition. He's not concerned about their praise. What does he want? What's the text say? I want to know you. I want to know you. I want to understand you. And then keep reading. Let's see what else he says. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said to them, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, then don't bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight? I and your people. It is not in your going with us. Is it not in your going with us? What, is it? what does he want more? What does Moses want more than anything else? What does he want? I want to know you, God. I want to know your way. And I want to be with you. And I want you to be with me. That's what I want. That's all I want. And if, if you're not going to give me yourself, if you're not going to give me, you're not going to show me your way, you're not going to go with me, then strike me dead. I don't want to go. I don't want to lead this people. I want you, and I want your power, and I want your presence. And then he says later, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God puts him in the cleft of the rock, and he proclaims his name. And he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. That's who I am. Gracious to forgive. God tells him who he is. He shows him who he is. And then every day thereafter, Moses meets with God face to face. And in chapter 34 in Exodus, we see a really weird occurrence. Moses meets with God all the time and he comes out before the people and his face is shining. And I don't mean shining as an oily teenager. I'm I'm saying shining as it's, it's luminous. There's the, the, the Hebrew word means rays shooting out of it. That, it's just weird. And, and it's so weird 
that the people are afraid. So Moses, after he meets with God, whenever he comes out to the people, he always wears a veil because it's freaking everyone out. What's happening? What's happening? When a person draws near to God and they communicate and their chief desire is to be with God and to know God, God begins to make them holy as he is. That's how it works. God makes us holy. God makes us holy. And we become like God. We don't become God, but we come like God. This is the process. This is how sanctification works. This is how he calls us a holy nation. And then, that's a declaration, that's a proclamation. But then he makes us what he calls us. You see how that works? Moses was not humble in Exodus 3. Moses is very humble in Numbers 12. How? Because he wanted the presence and the power of God. He wanted to be with him. He wanted to know him. And he wanted to know and walk in his ways. And he met with him all the time. And God is saying to, Mo, to, to Miriam and Aaron, listen, yeah, I know. Yes, I speak to you. You're, you're my prophets. I give you visions. I give you dreams. I'm not disputing that. That's how I speak to prophets. Not so with Moses. He's different. He comes to me and we speak face to face. The question is, do you want to be humble? Do you want to be made holy? If the answer to that question is yes, then you have to draw near. You have to draw near. Take a look at, at Matthew chapter 11. We're, we've, we've leapt forward thousands of years to the one that Moses ref- was, was referring to. Moses, or rather Matthew eleven twenty eight and 20. Come to me, all ye who labor. This is Jesus speaking. And all of her heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. Do you remember what God told Moses? I'll make my name known to you. I'll go with you and I will give you what? Rest. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. You see that word lowly? The Greek word here, lowly, means to be of no account. It's the same word that is described of Moses. It's lowly, meek, humble. It's the same word. Who's humble? God is humble. Jesus is humble. I am lowly and gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Here's what Jesus is inviting each person here to do, to draw near to him. To draw near to him, to converse with him, to hear from him. To speak to him as a man speaks to a man or a woman speaks to her husband or vice versa. To hear from God through his word and through the Holy Spirit which he gives us. And, and, and you, know what? you know what? And sometimes to complain to him the way that Moses often complained to God. Moses complained to God regularly. He did not complain to the people. And to intercede for others. This is what it means to take his yoke upon us. It means to draw near to Christ, to draw near to him, to experience him. And here's the thing. 
Let's be honest. Verse 30, for my yoke. What's a yoke? Yoke is, is something that you put on a beast of burden. It's a harness, and it, you put that on the, on the beast of burden, and then the beast of burden pulls the plow or what have you. Yoke and easy don't seem to go together. And here's the thing. Many of you will not draw near to Christ because you think to do so would be burdensome. You think to do so would be toilsome. You think that he's going to ask you to do something that is hard, that he won't give you the grace to actually do. And let me tell you something. He will ask you to do hard things. Fact. But you are yoked to him. He's the one who gives you the strength. He's the one giving you the power. He's the one pulling the plow. And he will let you know who he is. And in letting you know who he is, he will change who you are, who we are. That's how sanctification works. Moses knows his God personally. And because he knows his God personally, he knows himself very, very well. He knows his flaws. He knows his sins, his past as his present sins. He knows his hurts. He knows that he's been wounded. He knows that people criticize him constantly and now his own siblings. He knows all of that, but he also knows more importantly who he is in relationship to his God. He knows that he is called. He knows that he has been declared holy. He knows that he is righteous. He knows that God has a purpose for him. And when you draw near to Christ and you yoke yourself with him, you will see yourself clearly for the first time. Your hurts will still be there. You, the wounds, things done to you and things that you have done, the shame, it'll all be there, but you'll come to Jesus and Jesus will lift that shame from you. He will lift that guilt from you. He will empower you. He will speak truth to your very soul. He will speak into your being and he will tell you things like, you are loved. He will tell you things like, you are holy, you are righteous, you are gifted. I have created you for a purpose. There is no weapon formed against you that shall prosper because I am with you. And I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will go before you. I will stand behind you. I will buoy you up so that no enemy shall prosper against you. No critic can bring you down. Yes, you will fail, but I will never fail. There are times where you will be faithless, but I will always be faithful because that's who I am and that's who you are in me. But you've got to draw near because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. My fear for this congregation, and it's a fear, it's not a fear for myself, but it's a, te- it's a, it's a temptation is to not draw near, but to withdraw because drawing near sounds hard. The opposite is true. To not draw near and to not take on that yoke is to walk independently of God. And once you begin to walk independently of God, and I can testify to this as a leader, you will care more about what your people think of you than what God thinks of you. And you will begin to do your ministry so that you can please all those people and you become the dancing bear on the stage. Whatever your context of performance is in the family, in the workplace, in your culture, 
If you don't not draw near to Christ, you will make those people your God. And they will crush you. And in your pride, you'll defend yourself. And in your pride, you'll vindicate yourself. And in your pride, you'll never rest. But the power of the gospel can set you free from all that. Just like it did Moses. There's a resource that we have available. I was taken through this when I was, went through counseling in 2019 for anger. And when I met with my counselor, Stacy and I, he said, you know, I'm, anger's a secondary emotion. I, I have a hunch that probably pride is your issue. So we'll start there. It might not be. It was a good guess. It was a good guess. Uh, we have many, many copies of this available from pride to humility. It, uh, it's a resource on how to grow in humility. I want to encourage you to pick that up. If you would like to be prayed for or you have prayer requests, please come forward. Love to pray with you. Also want to encourage you to check out Learning About Grace, express interest in helping, send a prayer request, how to give, so forth and so on. The bottom line is we can't draw near to God without drawing near to one another. No one draws near and is yoked to Christ without being yoked to the body of Christ. And if you're not connected, if you're not connected, I want to encourage you, encourage you to take this next steps that you need to take so that you might get to know someone and walk with them as you walk with Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Lord, you are good. You are holy. You are perfect. And Lord, you call us to come alongside you, to be yoked to you, to learn from you. Thank you that your burden is easy. It is light. Thank you, Lord, that you carry us. Thank you, Lord, that you make us holy. Lord, would you work in the hearts of those that are here today that are afraid to draw near to you for whatever reason, afraid that you might ask them something of them that they're not yet ready to do. Lord, I pray that you give them courage to see themselves in light of how you see them. And Lord, for those who have not yet received you as Savior, I pray that they would draw near to you and they would receive the grace that you so mercifully give to all who call on you in the name of faith. Lord, that, uh, that they might be saved, that they might be uh, brought into the family of God, receive your spirit, pardon from sin, and receive the gift of righteousness that comes through faith. Lord, we thank you for, for being a good, holy, and perfect God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless, go in grace, and we'll see you next week.